0: We're nine years into what Forrester has been calling the age of the customer and pegging the start to roughly 2010 when the balance of power tipped from companies to consumers with just the availability of data, the ease of switching their business gave them tremendous power that companies have, at least in lip service, responded to by putting a huge emphasis on trying to understand their customers, what their needs and wants are, and trying to better serve those. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. This week's episode is a very special episode. It's our 200th episode. And so, Jenny and I, as well as Will and Amanda, thought we would take a look back and revisit some past episodes. And we're going to play some clips for you, but look back at what are the things that keep coming up. First, we're going to hear from Rick Parrish sharing the results of a survey that practitioners at companies have taken summarizing their CX management maturity. And so this is self-reported data, and I think it's fascinating what we hear.
1: The state of CX management maturity today is um, not great. We have these three levels, beginner, intermediate, advanced, and we assess CX management maturity on a competency-by-competency basis. So you can imagine being very good in measurement but not great at enablement, for instance. Most companies are still at the beginner level in every single competency.
2: I liked how Rick was laughing a little bit when he answered that, letting us know that maybe things have not greatly improved uh, over time here.
1: Laugh, Um, Laugh
0: so you don't cry.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or we just empathize with the case, right? Because we know this, because we talk to CX professionals and we know that they're going through this struggle. But it is interesting and maybe a little surprising because we are talking more and more to customer experience professionals, right? That's why we do this podcast. We know that people are investing here. So it might be a little surprising to hear that the maturity is still relatively low. So I'd like this next clip from Rick, which explains why it is staying at this stage.
1: things that I look for in there is not just whether or not companies are performing this or that CX management activity. You're familiar with the research. maybe called recall there, there are 12 activities. I don't just necessarily look to whether or not they're performing an activity, but if they're performing it with discipline, especially with the facet of discipline that we call rigor. Uh, rigor is whether or not you're performing an activity in a way that's proven to be effective, right, and whether you're documenting that so it's reproducible, because plenty of companies... May they perform some CX management activity, but they haven't actually
0: figured out if it's doing what they think it's doing. Yeah, and so it's nearly impossible to be mature in any of the CX management maturity disciplines if you don't know how you as a company have decided this is the way we're going to do it. And here's the evidence for how it works. I will say, Jenny, that, you know, if you'd asked me to predict at the start of the age of the customer, and around the same time when we started managing and tracking CX maturity, whether we would still be at beginner level in 2019, I would have said no way. And you could have have won a lot of money from me because I would have bet good money that we would have advanced past beginner level by now. So I'm at a loss to explain this. Do you have any sense for why we're still at a beginner level today?
2: Yes, I think that there are many factors at play and it will vary depending on the company and the industry and the type of business that they're in. But we know that people are interested in CX. They are hiring people to be in charge of CX. But I think it does come down to a resource, an employee problem. Right. So that they're not necessarily given the resources to measure the customer experience in the way that they would like to. Right. So that reduces the rigor. And also some of it is still cultural. I think I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was saying that they needed to give these recommendations that we were giving around experience design to the CIO because they were the one in charge of the strategy. They were the one who needed to hear the story in order to make something happen. I was like, oh, well, you know, we're talking to the customer experience professional who's thinking holistically about this customer journey. then that should also have an impact right and the answer was no (laughs) that person didn't have a seat at the strategy table yet and so I think that there is still this cultural component at play where the case still has to be made that CX isn't a nice to have you can't just check the box you actually have to embed it in the organization strategy
0: so our second big trend topic from the CX casts first 200 episodes is design And this is the discipline of the six in the management maturity model that companies tell us they are the most mature on. Now, they're not that mature. To give a little preview here of this next clip with Rick explaining the maturity around design as a discipline, but I think that does stand out that this might be the one that they have got process and rigor around how they do
1: it. The competency that is most mature is design, but still 73% of companies put themselves at the beginner level in design and only 6% at the advanced level. That's the rosiest picture in design, and you can see 73%, about three-fourths of companies are still working out the basics.
2: So going back to what Rick said, not surprised that companies are still at the beginner level, and that's because we have been tracking this evolution of the field, what we now call experience design, and it is constantly evolving, and it is still running into many of the same problems that it did when the CX cast first talked about this back in episode five. But when we think about where we've gone from episode five to now, there are three things that are really interesting. So first design is still important for that software reason. We're seeing even more devices and interfaces now. There are even more drivers why it's important. It is still limited in organizations. It's still distributed. We'll share some clips on that. But we do see some good shifts and evolutions too.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that comes up in our conversation with Jeff Gotthelf, when he was talking about the reason behind him writing this book, Sense and Respond, was that designers were telling him, yeah, yeah, we love your thinking around agile design, but we can't practice that at our organization. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, Jenny, to take this seriously at an organizational wide level requires commitment that is not in the hands of just a UX team or just a designer. And um, I think that's something that, that Jeff articulated very well as what needs to happen is a business needs to build right. this into how it designs products and services from the very beginning. And so the idea behind Sense and Response is we increase the
1: agility of our organizations, right? Many organizations hire the process agile, right, with a capital A, mm-hmm. to try to increase their ability to react to market forces. I think it's irresponsible For organizations not to sense and respond to what's happening in the marketplace in real time, in market time. We just don't have the luxury of dictating to our customers what they should buy, where they should shop, how much they should pay
2: for things. There's just too much competition and there's too much change. So I love that quote because I like how Jeff said it was irresponsible today to not be sensing and responding because it really puts that emphasis that companies can't just think about here's a product, here are the requirements, we're going to build it and ship it and leave it. But it speaks to the fact that people are constantly interacting with these, you can be providing feedback, and you have to be altering it so that it delivers on their needs and expectations, not just what the business wanted to launch.
0: And it's irresponsible because your customers are going to leave for other companies who are sensing and responding. So if you don't do it, it's not as if you're, you're going to get a pass here. Everybody else is picking the ball up here and running with it. And so, again, you are costing yourself business.
2: I like this next clip from Jeff also because it speaks about the shift that companies need to make to become an organization that can sense and respond to their customers.
1: Sense and respond is designed to really take the dogma out of that conversation and speak to how do you build a learning organization. An organization that values what your customers are doing, how that impacts your business, and then reciprocate that by creating the kind of culture that allows the teams who work on those products to respond to improve
0: the service so that the customer experience continues to get better and better and better. I love the idea embedded in there of a radical shift in mindset mm-hmm. for an organization to admit that when we put something out into the marketplace... We don't know what's going to happen. It is a guess. It is a hypothesis. And so right. we are very open to learning from the feedback that we will get. And we know that we will uncover things that we need to fix or improve or tweak to make it better. That is such a different mindset than today of we nailed it so it gets out into the public. It's not nailed yet. And we look forward to finding out in which ways we can improve it.
2: hmm and it's also really hard, though, right, because it means you have to shift your metrics, <laughs> how you do business, um, accept not necessarily failure, right, but reframe that as learning and just try to continually find the best solution for that problem. And so I think that also speaks to another thing when I was looking at how the design topics that were being covered here were changing or themes that they were latching onto, And that was not just the growth in the need for design, but the human centered emphasis in that design to make sure that you are delivering a good customer experience. And that became increasingly important because what Jeff was just talking about and what we talked about here requires understanding your customers, understanding humans and what their needs are to develop the right products. But it also can help you avoid Chasing shiny objects and innovation theater and something that I hate to see out there because we do have so many new technologies today to use and to design and to interact with customers like voice that you have to make sure that that end experience is value added and something that is useful and usable. And so for that, we can cut to a clip from this year's CX Predictions.
1: So we cover a big range of trends, and then we concluded something about human-centered design and the relationship between that and digital customer experience.
0: Why are you highlighting that in this digital CX? Like, shouldn't you just be sharing the newest, coolest gadgets and technology use cases and interface designs with us and then leave it at that? Why is human-centered design so prominently featured in this report about digital CX trends?
1: Customer experience is all about perceptions, and what we found is that the best way to create positive perceptions – is to use human
2: centered design. This speaks to the design process, which is bring people in to co create before you even build it and launch it, right? So that you don't have to put, and this is a big lesson out there for everyone trialing technology, you don't have to build out that full experience and put all that resource and time and money into it to test it with users, right? So you can do a Wizard of Oz prototype, pretending to be Alexa, talking to a human, see the type of questions that they ask and what they find weird about a voice only interaction before you build it. And so a big component of that human-centered design process is, of course, the research, which, you know, similar to as we talked about, this lack of rigor with the other CX practices can still exist in research when companies are treating it as a bolt-on instead of embedding it in the process. And so there are some lessons to be learned from companies that do embed research Include research at a high strategic level so that it's informing the product strategy. And also arm research with the ability to talk with other stakeholders in the organization so that their ideas stick. And I really love this quote from Kelly Price that explains how effective research can be done. Oftentimes we see this happen particularly within technology companies starting at a product level of embedding researchers within product teams. This has become sort of a ubiquitous best practice at most technology companies. And the reason for that is by having a researcher embedded within that team, research becomes less like something that it says external to the process of how Mm -hmm. decisions are made, right? It's like, oh, we're like at this point in our process of decision-making, let's call in research. No, like they need to be there from the beginning and helping to shape what are the questions that we're asking, how does this relate to what we already know? And researchers also, you know, by it's not just about product teams, for example, understanding research. It's also to be about researchers understanding the product and understanding Everyone else works, right? It's a two way street.
0: What I think Kelly articulates there, it makes me think of, is that the research is so responsive to the needs of the business, to the questions you want to ask, that it feels completely intuitive to how you're designing products and services, right? It's, it's integrated, it makes sense to do it, it's not this separate research activity that sometimes I think research gets into that sort of separate world of research on its own, rather than research to answer questions that we have that we want to get input about at the appropriate times.
2: And so now companies are starting to scale the research organization, sort of embed it within product teams, help them make strategy decisions, and also arm them with some resources and tools to do this effectively.
0: And one of the things that some of these tools are being used for. That is another theme from past episodes of the CX cast is better understanding emotions that customers feel. I think first of all when we go way back into an early episode of the CX cast, we were sharing the insight that emotions really matter. They're a powerful driver of the customer experience. They are actually the strongest driver of people's perceptions of how the experience went. They have a huge predictive quality on how well they'll remember, and then therefore act on a good or bad experience, the emotional notes and how strong those emotional notes were in the experience. So then in this next clip, we're going to hear from Anjali Lai, some of the data that tells us how important emotions are to customer experience.
2: In terms of the research here at Forrester, the customer experience index
1: data has shown that emotion is the strongest driver of loyalty, especially compared to effectiveness and ease. Because emotion is such a strong driver of loyalty, managing emotions effectively will allow customers to, for example, forgive companies when they Mm -hmm. run into issues related to ease or effectiveness or other functional elements of the interaction. And so customer experience professionals really need to prioritize emotion because of its power and influence over customer perception which then affects brand attitude, memory of experiences, and then subsequent behavior.
0: So we've been tracking this now for several years. As a reminder, this was four years ago when Anjali said this. And what was counterintuitive about it was that the finding that people will make a decision for emotional reasons, and then after the fact, ascribe rational benefits to the decision they made. So then when you ask them about it, They will tell you about those rational benefits, which do sound like things that were effective about the experience or easy about the experience, but they added those on after the fact. And I think that's what's hard to unpack at first is they're telling me all these rational reasons and benefits, but they don't seem to align that well with what people actually do. And it's because they add them after the decision has been made. So once you know how important emotions are to the customer experience, you can then prioritize how customers feel about an experience they have in how you design it and how you recover from a service failure. But you also want to think about how you create the right emotions. And that's where we also have found, and I think this is really interesting, that positive customer emotions are more salient, more powerful if they were delivered by a human. And the same for negative emotions. Mm -hmm. So the face-to-face or voice-to-voice interactions have more emotional resonance than the digital ones do.
2: And so I find that especially interesting because so many companies today are focusing on chat bots, right, and self-service and how can we automate and increasingly remove humans from the process to make it faster and more efficient. But this really emphasizes the fact that that may not be the best solution or that even if you have designed some experiences that are self-service or automated or technology based, there should still be. A human who's available to interact with for those moments when the customer wants to.
0: Yes. And even as companies are trying to do more self-service, you know, use these new technologies where appropriate, they cannot ignore the existing remaining human interactions because mm-hmm. they have such an outsized role. And as more touch points likely continue to move to self-service and digital interactions, the remaining fewer human interactions become even more important in how the experience is remembered. So to your point, designing those switchovers so that they work well to the human is important and putting great emphasis on the human nailing that touchpoint through training, through giving them the time and the sort of openness to take as much time as needed with the customer. That's really important because otherwise all the great self-service you enabled is not remembered alongside that one bad moment with a human. So, I mean, all the bottom line savings that come from enabling more self-service don't mean anything if the top line goes away. Right. Right, All the customers leave. So it's all well and good to know that emotion matters a lot to the customer experience and to know that humans deliver better emotion. But I think it's helpful to hear this next clip shared with us by principal analyst Ian Jacobs about how one company, DBS Bank, actually applied that thinking to change the way it delivered a specific experience to its customers.
1: Did an analysis of the frequent Kind of calls that they get They're a credit card issuer and people often Call in because they lost their Card or the card was stolen And that's just a really common call type In the past because they had efficiency Metrics they had designed their service Process around efficiently getting You a replacement call but then During internal discussions somebody Said you know people don't actually lose Their credit card all that often In a vacuum it's often their Purse or their wallet that's been stolen or lost. It's like a much more traumatic thing than just our little component of it. And so they decided to rejigger their service process to focus on that much more traumatic experience that the customer is actually going through. If in fact the wallet or purse was stolen, they actually make sure the customer is safe, both physically and mentally. Do you need to go to the police? Have you reported this to the police? And they have resources to help connect you. And then they take care of replacing your credit card efficiently. But they also have resources of available to the agent to now provide customers with information about how to replace their driver's license or, frankly, competitor's credit cards, anything else that might be part of the theft of that entire wallet or purse, right? They're trying to address the more emotional component rather than thinking about it simply in designing an efficient process. And there's no technology involved in that except maybe changing the scripts that the agents have a little bit and providing agents lists of things that they can look up.
2: I like that example because it emphasizes the point that part of the reason why this might be so emotionally resonant is because by the time that person reaches out to that human at the organization, that customer service representative, they are more emotional, and so enabling that employee to respond to that emotion, manage it, solve the greater problem is really critical to that part of the journey.
0: Yeah, and one of the keys. To getting that experience right for those more emotional customers was the support that they provided to the customer service reps with different scripts so that they could know that this was part of a larger traumatic experience the customer likely had and handle it with the sort of care and the larger concern for their well-being and for the other things that they might need to replace that the situation warrants. Unfortunately, we don't see that thinking applied generally when we are trying to enable employees. Enablement of our six management maturity disciplines is the least mature. 88% of companies rate themselves at the beginner level in that competency, which is the highest of the six. And that's a real problem because it means that All of that work that we talked about that companies are trying to get more sophisticated in how they design experiences, the research that they do, is for naught if you don't have employees set up for success in how they deliver the experience.
2: And this isn't because companies aren't measuring employee engagement. It seems like they are, but they are not yet measuring the right things to understand why employees feel that way. And so this next clip is going to talk about how you can fix this and what you should be looking for to understand the employee experience.
0: That was when I started sort of collaborating with Dave. He had been working sort of incubating this idea about a better way of measuring the employee experience. And from the customer experience side, we heard, I would say, a similar challenge expressed by a very different client in a different way, Mm -hmm. but the idea of we just don't have insight into what is happening at the individual employee level to know what it's like for them to try and deliver our customer experience. Now, of course, they were focused on just the customer experience side of this equation as the CX team would be, but it was often that same sort of lack of knowledge of, you know, as Dave was expressing, the people responsible for the workforce facing technology didn't know how, you know, the workforce felt about it. And the customer experience team responsible for the outcomes that the employees deliver to the customers mm-hmm. just had no insight into how those employees were doing their work and just were dying for more information in that area so this really did seem like a response to the needs of those two sets of very important Forrester clients customer experience execs and technology execs who are responsible for workforce technology And so if you don't know the state of your employee experience, starting to measure it using something like the employee experience index is a really good starting point. And in this next clip that will feature our colleague, principal analyst, Dave Johnson, talking about what leads to better customer experience delivery, one of the things that he's highlighting is improving employee experience leads to more discretionary effort. And I think he does a really good job of laying out why that matters to CX delivery.
1: When people choose the to go above and beyond. That's what great customer experience is made out of, right? is when people get more than what they expected. Difference between one definition of a positive customer experience or customer satisfaction is the difference between what's expected and what's received. And when people can consistently go to an organization, and go to a company they do business with, and receive more than they expect, that's a product of discretionary effort. And there's an IBM study that showed that about 95% of employees reporting a positive experience with their company say that they will engage in activities that are beneficial to their company but aren't necessarily part of their job. And for those who report a poor employee experience, it drops to about 55%. So again, discretionary effort is a huge outcome here.
2: That last clip showed how important it can be for companies and employees to go above and beyond to create that positive customer experience. And a big part of going above and beyond is what the employees can do. But employees won't know how to expend their discretionary effort if they don't know what impact their efforts and actions can have on that ultimate customer experience. So by connecting the dots between what that employee is doing and the impact it has on customer experience can go a long way towards creating those above and beyond and in-the-moment customer experience fixes. And in this next clip, we'll talk about how one company did that.
0: Another example that I like is called Crow Horvath, and they're a, a B2B accounting services firm. One of the things they recognized as a challenge, sort of a two-part challenge in their culture, was behind-the-scenes employees were not connected to their impact on client experience. And here was an organization, like many of the ones we work with, that was trying to transform to deliver this great client experience, and yet you have this huge cohort of employees who feel left out of that. And so you can imagine how that suggests to them that their work no longer holds the importance they might have thought previously if suddenly we're so focused as an organization on client experience, but I don't interact with clients, so does does my work matter anymore? And one of the reasons those employees couldn't see that is they never got recognition or feedback for their contributions to client experience. So what Crow did is is they created this program they called Pay It Forward, where every time a client feedback survey came in and mentioned one of their client-facing employees by name, that employee got a Pay It Forward alert to go in and add their colleague's name to the story. Who else helped you? With a particular focus on behind-the-scenes employees. To start, one, to show the the behind-the-scenes employees, probably in, in many instances for the first time, this is how you help us deliver great client experiences. This is already validated by the client survey coming in. And it's a recognition moment. And they saw the percent of employees who said they'd been recognized for their contributions to client experience went up by more than 50%. All right, that was our look back at the first 200 episodes of the CX cast where we talked a lot about CX management maturity, design, emotion, and the employee experience. Um, Jenny, if you look forward at the next 200 episodes, and we are having our 400th episode, what do you think we will be counting as the major trends in terms of topics that we've covered in that time?
2: hopefully the maturity won't continue to stagnate as it has from your prediction from nine years ago that we would be further along so i think we'll begin to see many more organizations who have mature cx practices which means that they have scaled that they are recognized and that they are playing a strategic role Um, i also think there'll be some other topics that will get a lot more attention so inclusive design Mm. is a topic that we've had a little bit on the CX cast, but I think that is increasingly important for companies to focus on both as a way to foster innovation, even if they are not value aligned with it, but also just as a value. It is very important for organizations. I think that is another theme, values. Rick Parrish brought this one up, but how companies live and breathe and display their values through the experience of their employees and their customers. And I, of course, also think that emerging technology and how companies are going to respond to it, decide to pilot and test it effectively and how important it will be to approach it from a human-centered design perspective is going to be a very big theme going forward as designers and CX pros have to address this increasingly connected, multimodal, data AI-driven world.
0: I like those. And I would just add one, which is I think we'll look a lot in the next few years at the collaboration, the struggles for deciding who does what between humans and AI Mm. in delivering a customer experience in doing the work, the entire work of an organization, but in particular for this podcast, how those collaborations work well or not for delivering a good customer experience. Listeners, thank you for joining us for many of these, all of these 200 episodes so far. We look forward to sharing many more thoughts and ideas and conversations around customer experience with you in future episodes of the CXcast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues Amanda Chen for recording and mixing the episode, and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast@forrester.com. At and remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer
1: experience reality.